0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for December 9th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardell. Very happy to welcome you to another edition of our program. It's resource each Friday for insights on salient developments in appellate law from California practitioners, jurists, and academics. I'm excited for the show this week. It features wisdom from the California Appellate Bench and insights on how a recent second district ruling circumscribes the reach of the U.S. Supreme Court's major decision in Walmart, 1st Dukes, a labor law case from a few years ago regarding statistical sampling in class action employment suits. First, California Court of Appeal Associate Justice Nora Manella will visit to discuss a, a range of topics from her time as the Central District's U.S. Attorney to her years on both the federal and state benches. She'll describe from her vantage point what approaches the most effective appellate counselors share, as well as some common pitfalls met. By the same, which also described why judges should never skip lunch. Then, Lisa von Eschen, a partner with Lamb and Kawakami, will join the show to chat about Lubin v. Wackenhut, recent second appellate district ruling, vindicating the use of statistical sampling in an employment class action brought by California security guards. The trial court there had decertified the class after the U.S. Supreme Court disallowed such sampling in Walmart v. Dukes, though under somewhat different circumstances. Ms. von Eschen will discuss why the appellate panel felt neither Duke's nor another recent California Supreme Court decision did not preclude statistical sampling in this case, and why the practice could use some clarification from the state high court. Before we get to my guest, let me remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. There should be a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Click through that and one hour of credit can be yours. Without any further ado, then, Very excited to get to my conversation with Justice Nora Manella. I'm tremendously honored to be joined now by a a longtime fixture of the California legal community, former U.S. attorney for the Central District, federal district court judge, and current appellate justice on the Cal Court of Appeal, 2nd Appellate District, Justice Nora Manella. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're talking today principally about appellate practice generally, and some thoughts and guidance that you might have for appellate counselors applying their trades Some practices or philosophies they might do well to to either espouse or or eschew. But um, before we get into the nitty gritty of appellate best practices, perhaps we could back up and speak about how you yourself came to to find yourself on the uh, the California appellate bench. So, uh, kind of going all the way back, you grew up um, here. In Los Angeles, and your father Arthur Manella was a, a prominent tax attorney here in, in Los Angeles, and founded the firm. Irrel and Manella, of course, was an attorney to many of the town's biggest stars at the time. So, such a childhood one might think would potentially presage a legal career for someone like yourself. But I believe you said in other interviews that a law career wasn't something on your mind at that time. Correct? What, um, what perhaps did you think uh, your professional path might look like?
1: Well, growing up in the 50s and 60s in Los Angeles, um, I was aware that my father was an attorney. I knew he was a tax attorney. When I told my friends that, most people thought I would said taxidermist, and I really didn't know the difference. He didn't talk much about his work. He was a, a quiet and fairly introspective man. So other than knowing that he did something fairly complicated, and my impression was he did it quite well, I really had no idea what my father did. And I'm sorry to say my knowledge of tax law today is uh, not much greater than it was when I was growing up. Um, I, I'm not sure I had any professional aspirations as a, a child, I think I thought I would um, marry well and live the life of a dilettante, and by that measure, I have failed miserably so um I know it 's not very inspiring uh but uh i can't really say I gave a huge amount of thought to what I would do professionally uh growing up, even though my mother was a journalist and had had a radio show when I was growing up, but she stopped working professionally around the time that my brother and I were in junior high and then was very active in civic organizations, and in the, uh, as a founding member of the Los Angeles County Art Museum docent council. And I thought she had a pretty good life. Sure. So I would say it wasn't until I got to college that I even started thinking about what I might do professionally.
0: At college, at Wellesley, you studied Italian as, as your major. I'd be curious to know what, what led you to Uh Well,
1: why? Yes. Well, it's a fair question. <laughs> um, I have been an opera buff from an early age, very early age, about about junior high. And um, so I started taking Italian actually at at UCLA my last year in in high school. And then I decided that I would major in something that would allow me to study music and literature and art and history and just do it in another language. I just thought that would be more interesting. And sometimes people have asked uh, whether I wished I had majored in political science or something like that as a, a preparation for law school. And I say no. I think you should get a broad liberal arts degree in something that interests you and major in something that requires you to write. And the last couple of years of my time at Wellesley, uh, both living abroad and here, uh, basically I mostly wrote. And I think learning to write clearly and cogently in any language is the best preparation for law school. So I don't regret the Italian uh, major at all. I really didn't think about law school until my father suggested it. I think going into my senior year, my brother was already in law school, and I said I had thought about it, and he said, I think you'd enjoy it. And that was the full extent of my discussion about law school. So I really went, still having very little idea of uh, what lawyers did.
0: Did you, in fact, enjoy it? You came back here to Los Angeles I, to go I, yes, to USC? Yes. Um, I had
1: no intention of spending another winter in the East. In fact, I realized when I was applying at the beginning of my senior year, I had spent two years at Wellesley and one in Italy. And uh, if I went to law school in the East, I would be contemplating spending another total of another four winters in the East, and that wasn't going to happen. In fact, I didn't even want to go to Northern California because I thought it would be too cold. So I was uh, determined to come back here for law school, and I did enjoy law school. I, I think I was one of those uh, students who enjoyed the academic aspect of law school. Some people couldn't wait to get out and start practicing. I had very little understanding of what practicing law meant, and I enjoyed the the intellectual rigor of law school. It's probably right. one of the reasons I wanted to go on and clerk.
0: Right. Yeah, and you clerked on the, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals for Judge John Minor Wisdom, which just... As an aside, that's got to be one of the more remarkable appellations for a jurist alongside the likes of, of learned hand and, and such. Yes. Um,
1: well, and he was one of the leading lights of the 20th century, of 20th century federal jurisprudence. Um, books have been written about him. Uh, I was his first female clerk or first girl clerk, as he liked to say. And it was an enormous uh, honor uh, to uh, work for him to be given uh, that job offer and then to have a marvelous year working with just such an extraordinary, extraordinary jurist. He has often been credited as really being the intellectual author of affirmative action. He was among the very courageous Fifth Circuit judges who uh, integrated uh, the schools of the South during a period when there was enormous popular resistance to that. And as I say, many books have been written about him. But he was a, in addition to being a, a superb jurist, he was also a wonderful human being and everyone who clerked for him. And there is a whole um, sort of fraternity of uh, wisdom clerks uh, consider ourselves enormously blessed and privileged to have had that experience.
0: Sounds like a tremendous person to have have learned under. After that, you you served as a counsel to the subcommittee on the U.S. Constitution and the Senate Judiciary Committee, which sounds like a a fascinating Uh, role. I had
1: been encouraged to um, go to Washington, see if I could get a job on the Hill, uh, which I was... Able to do. And uh, the subcommittee which I signed on to was actually chaired by Senator Tunney, who unfortunately was defeated shortly after I arrived on the scene, and I assumed I would be out of a job. But the incoming senator for that committee was Birch Bayh, and he quite generously asked me to stay. And so I did. And for my time on the Hill, I worked primarily on a bill called the Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act it was designed to give the justice department standing to sue prisons and uh, mental institutions and hospitals that were engaging in widespread deprivations of their residents' uh, constitutional and federal statutory rights and during the period i was there we held hearings that they ended up being televised and got the bill through subcommittee and the bill eventually passed so that was a it was an interesting period to see how things on the hill worked both for better and for worse, but I had a great boss and I had a great um, sort of portfolio, so it was a it was a wonderful experience for me.
0: Then after that time, you were back in, in Southern California in private practice, I believe, at O'Melveny. My well, I actually years. joined
1: O'Melveny in Washington. Okay. Uh, they were uh very very kind I had summer clerked in the office here and uh they had a small office in Washington of which I'm now actually one of the founding members because we were quite small then it's much much larger now and uh they were kind enough to say you can go back to LA anytime and um, I wanted to stay in Washington a little bit longer but I knew I wanted to come back to Los Angeles eventually and so they were kind enough to allow me to work in the Washington office which I did for another year or so before coming back to Los Angeles. And I guess I was here about another four years uh, working in Los Angeles before going to the U.S. Attorney's Office.
0: Yeah, I'd be curious to know what inspired your move from from private practice into public service as a a prosecutor with the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Los Angeles.
1: Well, it was somewhat serendipitous. Um, I can't say that I found private practice enormously rewarding, though I did get from my years there some of my finest friendships and, and um, having as a mentor uh, a lawyer named Jim Colbert who has the uh, distinction of being Stephen Colbert's oldest brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, working with Jim was an experience that every associate should have. Working with somebody who was brilliant and an incredibly skilled lawyer and a wonderful human being, uh, he really set the model for how to how to do civil litigation in a way that may crush your opponent but do so politely and civilly and uh he, that that was really the highlight of my years at O'Melveny but uh the firm had a uh, had organized a, a trial advocacy program uh partially through the firm and through NITA the National Institute of Trial Advocacy and all of the sort of associates i think were participating in it i don't believe it was anything you volunteered for and it was one of these, you know, courses where we were given given exercises and you had to do an opening and a closing and eventually put on a trial and all that. And uh so I participated in it, as I say, not as a volunteer, but I think we were just expected to do it. And the head of the program at some point came to me and said, um, what are you doing here? You should be trying cases in the U.S. Attorney's Office.
0: Yeah.
1: And I said, Really? And I had a a former boyfriend who was in the U.S. attorney's office, and I knew he liked it very much, and I talked to him a little bit about it. And I didn't really see myself in the long term staying in private practice, and so uh, I took advantage of that opportunity. But, you know, if, if they hadn't had that trial advocacy program, and if the head of it hadn't come up and said that to me, it might not have happened.
0: Certainly, it was good to have serendipity on one side. How did you enjoy your time in that office?
1: Oh, I think most people will tell you it was the best job they have ever had. Um, in fact, when I became the U.S. attorney years later, and uh, Rob Bonner, a former U.S. attorney, uh, actually a former AUSA too, his wife, Kimmy, came up and said, uh, congratulations. And then she said, you know, Rob, didn't you always say that being U.S. attorney was the best job you ever had? And Rob, in his deep and plangent bass baritone voice, said, Actually, Kimmy, I think I said being an assistant U.S. attorney was the best job I ever had. (laughs) And I think uh, many of us feel that way. It's an enormous responsibility, um, but you learn to do everything. And you work with committed people. Um, The office was then run by the legendary, or the criminal division was run by the legendary Bob Brosio, later to become a very close personal friend. And uh, it was just a marvelous opportunity to learn an enormous amount about the craft of trying cases and doing appeals, because it was completely vertical. You handled the case from indictment to trial, you know, to um, verdict, and if successful, to appeal. Uh, so that was a wonderful experience. And then in the last couple of years there, I was chief of appeals, um, for which I always had an affinity. And... Uh, I like that because everybody in the office came through me, every single brief that was filed in the Ninth Circuit um, in the criminal division came through me. So I got to deal with everyone in the office and, um, you know, make sure that the product we were producing to the Ninth Circuit was um, up to snuff, or at least up to my standards. Uh,
0: So that was a wonderful experience. Um, Then your next step is your first, uh, on on the bench, you're appointed to the Municipal and then eventually elevated to the superior court. Could you tell me about your your first experiences as a judge and whether or not your time then, if you have any lessons that you you learned um, or things that you recall uh, now in in your your appellate jurist role?
1: Um, Well, I I think like most judges, I look back fondly on my first experiences as a municipal court judge. We have unification now, uh, but we didn't then, and I think it was actually terrific to be able to go in your first assignment to a full court, you were trying cases, but there were uh, misdemeanors um, You couldn't do too much damage, and there was, of course, appellate review um, So I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun uh you're a little concerned going from the federal bench to the state bench. you know the, the code sections will be different, where you know what you're doing and all that but um I quickly realized that I had a lot more experience than many of the lawyers appearing before me in those misdemeanor cases. And uh, I started out in Metro doing traffic and DUIs like everyone else, and then went out to San Fernando and Van Nuys. And I was only on the media court, I think, a couple of years before I was elevated to the Superior Court. So that was a, a nice period of time. Uh, and then on the Superior Court, I sat downtown doing felonies. And uh, I enjoyed that. Uh, you know, in terms of lessons learned, I would say don't skip lunch because it makes you cranky. And <laughs> you should never act on being cranky. Um, you, you know, you, you had to make some adjustments for state court coming from federal court. It is more informal. Uh, certainly people expect to break at a certain time in a way that just doesn't obtain in federal court, but you you learn that. Uh, but But overall, I thought it was a very satisfying experience. And, and, and you learned a lot. When I went back to the U.S. Attorney's Office as the U.S. Attorney, I had a new perspective on how judges see lawyers. And I tried to share that perspective with assistant U.S. attorneys as much as I could.
0: Sure. Be able to see the perspective from the other side of the, the chessboard. Absolutely.
1: Uh-huh. Absolutely. I uh-huh. remember coming back to a criminal division meeting in the U.S. Attorney's Office and someone was making fun of some judge who was, shall we say, nodding off on the federal bench. And I, I got up and I said, you know, and now that I've seen it from the other side of the well, let me tell you, you people are not that amusing. <laughs> Fre- frequently, staying awake is is a challenge uh, because you're quite boring sometimes. So I had a different perspective. And and I also, I think the real perspective you get once you're on the judge's side of the well is just how important attorney credibility is. <laughs> you quickly sized people up. You learned which, um, in the state system, which deputy DA was reasonable, which one would push too hard or make arguments that that really ought not to be made. Uh, which public defenders were you know fought vigorously for their clients, but were realistic in their plea negotiations. And you were sizing up people constantly. And that's what I told the assistant U.S. attorneys when I got back there: is that your mm-hmm. credibility is on the line every time you get up and open your mouth.
0: No. Your next step, as, as we've foreshadowed a bit, is as the, the U.S. attorney for the central district, of course, a, a very prominent uh, and esteemed position, but uh, certainly one that's entrusted with a, a tremendous and, and daunting amount of responsibility. I'd be curious to know what, um, what goes through someone's head when they, when they assume that mantle and, and carry on as the, the chief prosecutor for such a, a massive district like this one.
1: Well, the first thing I thought of was, what is my front office going to look like? Uh, and I suspect that 's what any u s attorney is thinking and um, I brought back my good friend and and former uh, person of seniority in the office, Rick Julian, who is you know one of the most well respected lawyers, particularly in public service in all of California he's since went on to serve in high positions well in the Christopher Commission, but then he headed the rampart um Commission, and he's now uh, still overseeing the implementation of the consent decree with the Sheriff's Department. And Rick and I are close friends; we also happen to be neighbors. Uh, and it was clear that that was the only person I wanted heading the criminal division. So if he was willing to leave his lucrative partnership at Skadden Arps and come back and work with me, I knew that we would be okay. And I also brought back Steve Zipperstein, who had been in, on a details Department of Justice, to be my chief assistant. And later, when Steve left um, to uh, go back into the world of private industry in order to support his uh, three daughters, uh, Rick became chief assistant, and I brought in Dave Shepard as chief of criminal. And again, I had no question that the office would be in good hands. And we had uh, Lee Weidman in the civil division, who um, had been a, sort of a, a rock in that division for many, many years. And Ed Robinson, the tax division, uh, and as Rick used to say, somewhat to our embarrassment, although my father was a prominent tax lawyer, I'm still not clear to this day everything that Ed did. But um, it's very important that you have faith in your supervisors, uh, and I certainly had faith in my front office. And then we sat down and you know, sort of set priorities for going forward, uh, which included obviously selecting the chiefs of the various divisions, sometimes making changes, sometimes not. And uh, at any given time, we probably had 20 um, high-priority prosecutions that I would be following more closely than I could obviously follow the hundreds of other cases that were brought every year. And uh, Rick rode heard on those prosecutors, and I think that made a big difference in making sure that the cases got investigated, got indicted, got tried, uh, because... You know, without that kind of pressure, things can languish.
0: That appointment at that time was uh, tendered by President Bill Clinton, a, a Democrat like yourself, but in the course of your career, you've been appointed or, or ele- elevated by mostly Republican executives, including Governor Schwarzenegger and Duke Meijin and, and Wilson. Um, I'd be curious to know if what, uh, what you think makes it so you, you're able to encourage and attract support from folks with different political ideologies than yourself.
1: Well, I guess it's because I stand for nothing, as one friend has suggested. But um, again, I think timing played a role. Uh My first ju- judicial appointment was by Governor Duke Magin toward the end of his um final term. And uh I remember being interviewed by his appointment secretary, Terry Flanagan, and he said to me, well, you know, you're a Democrat, and generally the governor appoints people from his own party. And I said, well, he, I figure he's got to appoint a few people from the other party, and I'm probably as inoffensive as he's going to find I'd been a federal prosecutor for eight years. I don't think the governor thought I was going to be soft on crime. And so I was lucky enough to get that appointment. Then, of course, once you're on the bench, when it comes time for elevation, there are reviews of your performance. So Governor Wilson wasn't exactly you know, flying blind uh, when he looked at me. And if you've been appointed by one Republican and you've not disgraced that governor, the next Republican governor is probably more likely to look favorably on you. And then, since I was a Democrat um, and, and had not never been anything, but uh, I was in contention, you know, for the position as U.S. Attorney, and with Senator Feinstein's support, that came about. And then I think any time you are the U.S. Attorney, uh, particularly if it's the president who uh, made you, uh, you know, not appointed you, uh, nominated you, you're probably considered at least in contention. For a district court, um, And fortunately, uh, President Clinton was still in office then, and, um, that happened. And then, by the time I was interested in the appellate bench here, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger was, was, uh, certainly not, um, you know, particularly ideological. Sure. I don't, I don't have the statistics, but it wouldn't surprise me if, uh, if he appointed more Democrats as a Republican, than than most governors have appointed people of the other party. I don't know that for a fact, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, Kind of my sense when I put my name in was that he and his appointment secretary didn't actually care too much about what your political affiliation was, which was, again, serendipitous, but very fortunate for me.
0: Sure, and refreshing to hear, especially in the particular... Yes. (laughs) Yes,
1: <laughs> increasingly rare, perhaps.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. Well, then we could talk about that. Move back to back to the bench. You you're prosecuting uh, cases and leading prosecutions as the U.S. attorney, but did you still harbor some desire to to return as a jurist, which, as you say, you did in, in 1998 onto the the federal district court bench?
1: And, you know, I did, and I'm not sure that I particularly uh, worked out the odds. If I had, I might not have become U.S. attorney, but. I think I viewed the opportunity to become the U.S. attorney as unique and one that I should simply take. I did it with the knowledge that if uh, President Clinton won a second term, I would be at least in contention for a district uh, court judgeship, and I had enjoyed being a judge in the state court, and I thought I would enjoy it again. So that was certainly my fondest hope. There were no guarantees it would come to fruition, but that that's what I hoped for, and I was just lucky that it worked out that way.
0: And then after eight years on the federal district court bench, you assumed the the current role that um, you fill, that of appellate justice for the state of California. I believe you've noted in previous interviews a a particular penchant for appellate practice and appellate law and appellate courts. What um, about that milieu do you prefer um, as compared to to trial courts?
2: I would
1: say it's the fact that it's all law all the time. And I like that. Um, I like the intellectual aspects of the law. There is um, little or no case management here, thanks to our competent clerks. We don't we don't really have to deal too much. You know, the cases come in, they're fully briefed. We get the records, we sit down, we plow through them, we crank out justice like little meat pies. Uh, and uh, there's no you know babysitting the lawyers. Uh, they we don't deal. We, we we obviously have hot writs and things that come up that require us to drop what we're doing and turn our attention to something like that. But we're not constantly dealing with the sort of nitty gritty bickering that goes on at the trial level and that I'm not sure any judge really likes. I, I do know there are judges who would hate this job. They consider it too isolating. They, they want to be surrounded by people all day and that, and that does have an energizing effect. There's no, no question about it. But I've already done that and I don't think I, I really have no desire to pick another jury or or sit through another trial. I mean trials can be interesting, but but sometimes you feel kind of like the secret service agent, you know long stretches of boredom interspersed with moments of panic. Um, so for me, I enjoy the sort of the pure law, if not pure almost pure uh, law aspects of appellate work. I just find it more interesting and um, more stimulating.
0: Okay. Maybe as between federal and state courts, you spent a good bit of time in both contexts. You mentioned earlier some difference in in formality, are there other principal differences in terms of the practice in those courts, either by attorneys or or judges?
1: Well, I've I've now had, I think, the dubious distinction of having sat permanently or on assignment on every state and federal trial and appellate bench (laughs) in California because I've sat on the Ninth Circuit and I've sat on the California Supreme Court. I would say at the trial level, the principal difference between the federal and state courts is that the state courts really have to do a volume business. I mean, they are doing most of the business. And that affects how much time you can put into things. Uh, at the criminal level, it it means that there's a lot less paper uh, filed, which I think is a disadvantage. Uh, one of the adjustments you have to make going from federal court to state court is, you know, prosecutor would get up and make a motion or defense would make a motion and you'd say, well, you're going to file something? Nope. Nope, that's it. You know? Oh, well, alright. Uh, and that's quite a bit different from federal court. I, I prefer, uh, you know, maybe it's the luxury of having things, uh, fully briefed. Uh, Yes. Yes. There's also a, a greater informality in state court, but I you know, I, I did not find that particularly difficult to adjust to. Uh, nor did I find federal court particularly intimidating because that was the court in which I'd grown up, so I, I was very accustomed to that. Um, but I, but I do think the state and tro- the state and federal courts are probably more different at the trial level than they are at the appellate level. At the appellate level, we're all doing the same thing. The principal difference, of course, is that on the Ninth Circuit, you're sitting in different panels with different groups of people, and that makes for greater, uh, certainly greater variety of your colleagues. Here, we sit uh, on a particular division, which is its own court, and in fact, when I applied to the Court of Appeal, I timed my application for a vacancy on Division Four because I wanted to sit with Norm Epstein and... Um, as I kid, it took um three gubernatorial and two presidential appointments to achieve my goal of sitting with Norm Epstein, something I had <laughs> wanted to do since I was a baby judge, and he was teaching at judges college. but um we sit obviously here with the same group of people. Now, if you are with a group of people whom you admire and respect and and uh, with whom you have good collegial relationships, that's a joy. Uh, I think in if I were starting from scratch, I think there are advantages to sitting with different jurists and not kind of getting in a rut. But having said that, most of us who who like the divisions uh, that we're on don't particularly want to change that. But in terms of the actual work, reading the briefs and oral argument and sharing your thoughts and drafting your opinions, uh, there's probably less difference at the appellate level between the federal and state courts.
0: That was a, one other question that I did want to ask is um, jurists that you perhaps had looked up to. So you mentioned Justice Epstein. What about uh, um, the jurisprudence that, uh, of his that you particularly admired or had looked up to when you were younger?
1: You know, not really in the sense of I didn't, first of all, I'm not a scholar of the law, so I haven't spent a huge amount of time, you know, reading this jurist's opinion and that jurist. We all have our favorite at least favorite Supreme Court justices based on their opinions, but I will not share that publicly. <laughs> um but I would say certainly Judge Wisdom, the way he operated, uh that was that was influential. And uh I just knew Justice Epstein to be a, a, a brilliant jurist and a clear thinker. Probably not until I worked with him did I Really appreciate what a what a stellar human being he was. And then I'm very fortunate. My colleagues, Tom Wilhide from the AG's office, whom I had known somewhat when I was on the Superior Court. And then uh, this past year, I was joined on my court by my former colleague on the District Court, the former Chief Judge of the U.S. District Court, Audrey Collins. And um, I remember literally shrieking into the telephone when she called me, and I was uh, pulling onto a freeway uh, on rap when she called to say that A, she'd been appointed, and B, she'd been appointed to this division. So, uh, you know, really, if you have a group of colleagues like that,
0: uh, you're very, very fortunate. Okay, so you've been uh, on that post now for several years as an appellate state justice. So let's go ahead and move into chatting about some of the appellate best practices, things you've seen from attorneys, things you might want to see more from the appellate counselors that appear before you. Maybe let's start at the beginning of the life cycle of an appeal when attorneys are, are looking for good cases to appeal or deciding whether or not to um, appeal in the first decision, that trial that went against them. Uh, I, I think I've heard from attorneys that there can be some difference of opinion uh, in terms of what makes the best appeal. Let's say it seems to conflict with, with precedent or it uh, alternatively just works grave injustice. Obviously, the, the two are probably most persuasive when they appear together. But between those two, would you counsel attorneys to be more focused on one over the other in terms of selecting a, a case to bring?
1: Well, I confess I've never really been in the situation of of uh, literally deciding should. well, I, I have a as U.S. attorney, I guess, but most of my work hasn't been as an appellate practitioner mm-hmm. – in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we thought long and hard uh, before taking appeals in those rare instances where we could appeal. Obviously, if the verdict went for the defense in a criminal case, that was the end of it. But if it were motions, uh, things that were appealable, and, and in fact, to backtrack a little, uh, one of the main things he did when I was U.S. Attorney was take uh, up eventually to the Supreme Court a case involving uh, charges of selective prosecution. I-, I was convinced we could win that case uh having lost in the ninth circuit and I spent a fair amount of time persuading the Solicitor General to seek cert in the case and uh frankly I would have been happy to argue the case. Uh but any time you are a government agency deciding whether to take something up, uh you you had better you'd better have everything possible on your side. In the more generic sense, uh you know, the average appeal, uh I would have to say that certainly precedent is the most important thing. Uh, because, as one of my colleagues says, every once in a while we get to do justice, but for the rest of the time we just apply the law. I mean, the legislature may have enacted statutes that we disagree with. We think they're ill-conceived. Uh, we wouldn't have voted for them had we been a part of that branch of government. But as jurists, we don't hesitate to enforce the terms of those statutes. So we don't first say to ourselves, is this a good statute? Is is it a result we particularly like? Um, the the unfairness comes in more in a case where obviously the law isn't clear. And you're asked, for example, to interpret a statute. And the language of the statute is before you, but the implications of it may not be clear. And needless to say, the fewer lawyers we have serving the legislature, I think, the, the more poorly drafted our statutes are, uh, but some case that is not obviously decided by precedent, then you start looking at what are the implications of construing the statute in this way, and would that work a grave injustice? Uh, and that's when certainly being able to point out to the court that interpretation A would work a grave injustice and interpretation B would not is, is going to be a more persuasive argument. But if you've got precedent on your side, for heaven's sakes, you know, we are bound by oath to follow that.
0: Okay. Well, then in in presenting arguments in in written form and and submitted briefs, uh, certainly you read a lot of those filings. What, uh, in your opinion, do some of the strongest ones share? And what what sort of things might you prefer to see less of in, in filed briefs?
1: Well, probably the, if I had to pick three things, I would say organization, clarity, and concision. Are what we long for in briefs and only occasionally get. Um, you know, we obviously we read hundreds, thousands of briefs and plow through hundreds of thousands of pages of record. So the clearer you could make your argument, the better, and the more organized you could make it, the better. And while concision, you know, <laughs> obviously it's an advantage to us because we have limited time, but at the end of the day, it's an advantage to a lawyer too because Given that we have a limited amount of time, you don't want us to get lost in the weeds. When um, what you really want is for us to focus in on your strongest arguments and rule in your favor. Um, you know, I, I understand that it takes longer to write a shorter, more concise, and better organized brief. But if you have the resources to do so, uh, I would certainly counsel that. I also think that the introduction is terribly important. I know very experienced lawyers working in firms full of brilliant young associates who say no matter how much of the brief is the associate's work, I write the beginning and I write the end Mm -hmm. because that's the first thing that a judge is going to see. And anybody, this was told to me actually when I was in law school by a litigator at IRL and Manila, who said, when the judge reads your introduction, when the judge is finished, he or she should say, if that's true, you win. Hmm. And that advice is true then, and I think it's true today. I don't think an, an introduction should be more than two pages long at the at the most, maybe a page and a half. It should distill the arguments, and the reader should finish that and say, if what you say is true, you
0: win. Discussing uh, oral argument. Do some of those practices also apply there, concision and, and clarity and organization and what... Um what do some of the strongest arguments tend to, to, to I, share that become before you?
1: Yes, when I, I think of you know and really good appellate practice is both a skill and in some ways an art, and it's always a pleasure to have you know a Rex Heinke or somebody who's really experienced before you, uh, who you know knows the issues, knows the record upside down, and and is listening to the justices. If if there's probably one flaw. Um, that we see more often than not it's it's an advocate who's not really listening to our questions we're not asking them to hear the sounds of our own voices uh we're asking because we really have a concern or we want to know we say what are the implications of your argument in future cases or uh does the record really uh support your argument of x and uh too often, I think lawyers just think, well, this is the argument I'm making, and I'm going to make it, and I'm going to sit down. But um, listening to the judge's questions is probably the most important thing a lawyer can do. And when you see the good appellate advocates making an argument and then running into some resistance from us, uh, they know when to pivot to another argument. They know when to say, okay, I can see from the questions of at least two justices up there that I'm not going to make headway on this argument. So... Let let me go to my next argument. You have to be nimble as well. And finally, I think you have to be prepared to tell the judges if we have misread the record in some way or if we have failed to appreciate some aspect of the record that you think is critical. Oral argument is your time to bring that to our attention. It's your time to talk to us, not at us.
0: I imagine that there's uncertainty or disagreement among attorneys as to just how much room for persuasion there is at oral argument. I think some folks will think that appellate panels will have largely made up their mind or even written their opinions by the time the arguments are tendered. Uh, how, How open do appellate panels tend to be at the time of oral argument or are your decisions largely made, but maybe you have a couple of concerns that could sway you one way or the other?
1: Well, to lawyers who, who sometimes complain that the justices seem to have made up their mind before oral argument, I always respond, you know, we read your brief. I mean, what fabulous, critical, uh, uh, persuasive argument did you not put in your brief and plan to spring on us at oral argument? I mean, it, this isn't uh, you know, reading tea leaves or looking at an eight ball. You've filed a brief, and your arguments are supposedly in that brief, and you've cited to the record. So there really shouldn't be any surprises at oral argument. Uh, I wouldn't say that, uh, well, I would like to think that we are always open to uh, oral argument. There are obviously some cases that you go into oral argument feeling are are closer or less close. And that's really a function of the record and the arguments. Uh, we have occasionally changed our mind. I personally would not waive oral argument because I think that's the opportunity for a lawyer to, frankly, test the court and make sure that the court has understood his or her arguments. Uh, you know, frankly, sometimes you get up there and you realize, yep, the court got my arguments and just did not find them persuasive, so I'm going to lose. But other times... Uh, you know, there will be some aspect of the case that was perhaps alluded to in the briefs, but maybe not emphasized, but that we now think is the big ticket item. And there's some aspect of the record that wasn't emphasized, but that the advocate can point to. Um, And and then there are cases where we walk in saying, well, this is what I think it's going to come out, but let's hear what they have to say. So um, I don't think there are any hard and fast rules, but certainly, no advocate should be surprised that the court has an opinion on his or her case when the briefs have been filed and poured over, and the record is, has been before the court. And if you do have a good argument, for God's sake, don't wait until oral argument to bring it up.
0: You hear certainly a wide range of cases—criminal, civil. Are there any particular types of cases that you enjoy hearing the most?
1: No, I can't. I, I can't say that um, that there are, but there are certain kinds of cases that you kind of. Um, Dread, only because they may be dry or technical. But, you know, in my experience, almost any subject, once you delve deeply into it, can become interesting. Uh, but I wouldn't say there are any cases that I think, oh, whoopee, a sequa case, you know, sure. or, uh, something like that. It just, it just kind of depends. And sometimes, you know, you know, there might even be some interesting evidentiary issue that pops up in a case, and you won't even know it's that interesting until you get involved in the case.
0: Uh, maybe broadening out just a bit, if you could impart some particular thought into the minds of an appellate counselor before he or she came into your courtroom, um, regardless of what sort of um, area of lawyer he or she is practicing, what uh, what would you most want that person to, to have in mind before they arrive in your courtroom?
1: Well, I can tell you what I used to do as an appellate advocate, whether I was for the Ninth Circuit en banc or any other argument, uh, I always had a, a in essence, a a spiel prepared. I had whatever my arguments were. I had notes to myself. I didn't read, never read from a prepared text. I think that's a terrible idea. Uh, but I knew, you know, the five points I wanted to make as I walked the court through each of my arguments. But I was also prepared to stop, answer any questions, pivot to the next argument if I needed to. So no one should come in without a set of prepared remarks. And again, not written down, but uh, at least prepared in his or her own mind. Um, and then I would say, come prepared to give your spiel, prepared to be interrupted, and prepared to listen to and answer the court's questions. Uh, that's your goal. And when you're listening to the question, you obviously have to be asking yourself, why does the judge want to know this? I know Justice Corrigan has a um, a pet peeve when she'll ask a question and a and a lawyer will say I'm, I'll get to that later. She feels like saying no, no, I want to know now, and I'm and I'm one of the people deciding this case. So talk to me about it now. Uh, I think being attentive to the judge's questions and attentive to why they probably want to know that is something that the lawyers should be prepared to do. One other thing, uh, and this has come up, we will sometimes ask a question and the lawyer will not know right then and there what the answer is. It's usually a question about the record. You know, was an objection made below or, or some question? And sometimes you can literally see the thought process going through the lawyer's head. And I have seen cases where, just like a witness asked a question who doesn't know it and should simply say, I don't recall, you'll see the lawyer think, well, I think the better answer is X. And they'll give that answer. Never do that. Never, ever, ever do that. The best answer is, I'm not sure, I will check, and I can provide the court with that answer. Uh, now, sometimes you're pretty sure, uh, and there's nothing wrong with saying, Your Honor, I'm almost certain, I believe it was, but I will check and I will confirm with the court. Uh, but never answer a question on the fly, because if you answer it one way, and we go back and check the record, which we will, and it's not true, you have just blown your credibility, you really don't want to do that.
0: That seems like a, a unifying theme that you brought up a, a few times now from your experience on the bench is that judges will quickly be able to deduce uh, an attorney's credibility based on you know, the, the few simple acts that he or she may, may perform at, at trial or oral argument. Yes.
1: yes. Uh, and, and obviously we're familiar with the record. So when a lawyer gets up and he, starts, he or she starts to make an argument and we say, well, wait a minute, doesn't the record reflect A, B, C, D, and E? We expect them to acknowledge that. Um, if they don't, I mean I've occasionally had a case where, where some lawyers just thinks that stonewalling is a persuasive tactic, and it's really not. In the end, you are trying to persuade us, uh, not not browbeat us.
0: Just one one last one for you. I'd be curious to know to the extent um attorney practice or appellate practice in your uh time on the bench has, has changed since you were appointed either for better or for, for worse
1: no i don 't think it has um, no I, I think coming into this court, people are quite well behaved uh, There is a court reporter, so that um, probably helps i mean there's a recording of the argument uh, but I think the the whole atmosphere of our court, frankly, the cabaret lighting in the courtroom um which I think is a little bit of a disservice to the lawyers. I think we should at least give them decent reading lights. Uh, but everything about the courtroom, I think, uh, encourages a respectful, uh, serious discussion. And uh, its I, I really can't think of a, a case where we've had a lawyer or even a pro se litigant uh, n- not behave in accordance with what would be expected. I think some trial judges will tell you in the absence of court reporters that's not necessarily the case anymore, but it's it's not a problem on the court of appeal. Uh, so it might be in the trial court that there has been a greater change in how lawyers behave, but in the, oh, I don't know, let me see, well, 35 or so years, however long I've been doing this, um, I, I have not, I certainly haven't seen a deterioration, um, and so I, so I think it's been about the same.
0: Okay. Um, well, that's uh, certainly good to know. I can let you get back to, to hearing that high-quality advocacy. Thank you so much for, for joining the podcast. Justice Nora Manella of the 2nd Appellate District. I appreciate your time.
1: Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: One more time, that was Nora Manella. Associate Justice on the California Court of Appeal, Second Appellate District in Division 4. Let's move now to my chat with Lisa Von Eschen, partner with Lamb and Kawakami. We're happy to welcome to the show now, Ms. Lisa Von Eschen, partner with Lamb and Kawakami here in Los Angeles and who practices a broad range of labor and employment law. Ms. Von Eschen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We're chatting today about the case of a Lubin v. Wackenhut out of the, the Second Appellate District from a couple of weeks ago. Um, pertaining to statistical sampling and and class action suits. Um, Certainly an issue that's come up quite a bit in in different courts over the past few years, so certainly an interesting ruling in the context of employment law here. Maybe let's start at the beginning. Um, The defendant here, uh, Wackenhut, they are a security guard employer or provider, and they employ thousands of, of guards in California, and a few of those brought suit alleging a few labor violations. Could you outline what those claims were?
2: So, there are three main claims, uh, the first being that they were not provided with off-duty meal periods compliant with California law, um, also claimed that they were not authorized and permitted to take off-duty rest breaks, and finally, that they were provided inadequate wage statements that did not comply with Labor Code 226.
0: Now. As to that first claim, that off-duty meal period claim, I understand that it's not necessarily a labor violation if um, employees are not provided off-duty meal breaks. They could be required to eat meals on duty in certain circumstances if, say, the the work required it, but there are some particular mechanisms that have to be satisfied uh, for that arrangement to occur, correct?
2: So in California, um, on-duty meal periods are permitted, but only under certain circumstances. Um, The nature of the work needs to prevent the employee from being relieved of all duty. So in a particular case, like a security guard, if they were the only one on duty, it could be permissible. But California requires a written agreement between the employer and the employee in order to allow that on-duty meal period, and the agreement must be revocable by the employee in writing at any time.
0: And now... Um, that particular part of the employment agreements here and, and the claims at issue is important with the statistical sampling that that is sought. Could you tell me a bit about what uh, what sort of statistical sampling what it was intended to show after this uh, this class of plaintiffs was certified about thirteen thousand workers.
2: Right. Um, so in um, in this uh, Wackenhut case, uh, the statistical evidence was attempted to be used to determine what subset of the class consisted of employees who were hired between a certain period of time, 2004 and 2008, who had signed the on-duty meal period with that required revocation language that I just talked about. Mm.
0: So presumably some employees signed an agreement that did not have the the requisite language saying that employees could revoke the agreement at at any time.
2: Right. There was some deposition testimony that established that There had been some employees further back who were missing the required language and then starting in 2008, they all had the required language and there was a middle period of time during which it was in question and they were seeking to use the statistical evidence in order to show what portion of that time period in the middle had class members who didn't have the requisite language in their agreements.
0: So what what is the actual process of this the statistical evidence? Is it just a sort of a sampling? They'll take a, a certain number of the contracts from folks in, in that time period and see how many ha- have the requisite language and then extrapolate from there to the, the full number of the plaintiffs?
2: That's what they were trying to do here. Um, in this okay. case, the defendant had resisted the idea of producing all the documents, and they had actually agreed in discovery to a sampling uh, whereby they would produce approximately 1,200 of the personnel files. um, And they had said, you know, we won't argue that that's, you know, that statistical sample size is too small, um, but then they didn't want to use that for the purposes of establishing liability.
0: Okay. Now, uh, around this time, there's a U.S. Supreme Court case, um, a major decision, Walmart v. Dukes, which deals with statistical sampling, and in that case, disapproved of it. Um, could you tell me what that case uh, was about and, and why the statistical sampling was not okay there?
2: Sure. Yeah. In the um, much-discussed Walmart v. Dukes case, um, it was an issue of gender discrimination, and um, the Supreme Court there rejected the use of of statistical sampling, Um, it it was a little bit different. The plaintiffs there wanted to use a sample of the class members and look at whether or not there was liability and damages there, and then extrapolate from that to the class as a whole. And that's what the Duke Supreme Court rejected.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into a bit more why it's significant using statistics to, to prove liability as opposed to damages, but after that U.S. Supreme Court ruling, the trial court here then decertifies the class that it had previously certified. I believe it was largely based on that Supreme Court ruling. Is that correct?
2: I believe so, too. I mean, they took the yeah. Duke's ruling um, and its rejection of statistical sampling and sort of used that as a hook to decertify the class and the use of the sampling here.
0: Okay, and then that is challenged, and the appellate panel decides just here in November that applying Dukes and, and relying on that precedent to decertify the class and to disapprove of statistical sampling in this case is a, an overextension of Dukes, that Dukes wouldn't necessarily disapprove of such sampling in a case like this. So why, in this unanimous panel's view, does Dukes not merit um, the decertification of the class here?
2: The appellate panel here um, seemed seemed to think that the trial court had taken Dukes just a little bit too far. Um, there was, uh, it, it sort of said, you know, maybe statistical sampling couldn't couldn't be used in this type of a case. There was a subsequent Supreme Court case that came out, Tyson, and I'm going to botch the name, versus Bua Faco. I um, guess it's as the, good as mine <laughs> on that case. Okay. <laughs> Um, Well, the Supreme Court there um, actually clarified and said, Dukes does not stand for the broad proposition that a representative sample is an impermissible means of establishing class-wide liability. Um, And in Tyson, the Supreme Court said, you need to consider whether using statistical evidence um, is okay based on the degree to which that evidence might be reliable in proving or disproving elements of a relevant cause of action. So um, I I think with that clarification, the appellate panel here revisited the notion of whether the statistical evidence and the purpose for which it was set to be used in this case was appropriate.
0: Let's tease out that last point a bit further to the the purpose of the statistical sampling. As the panel notes here, uh, the statistics are used for, for damage purposes and not to show liability. What's what's the big difference between using statistics to prove liability versus uh, damages, and why is it important uh, here?
2: I think the distinction between um, this and uh, in the Duke's case was that there they had no outside evidence of liability, um, and there wasn't actually a... Uh, an employer policy they were just going to take the sampling and um, I think the the court used the language trial by formula so they they were looking at what the Walmart managers were doing in the case of a small subset not small but a subset of the employees and then they were going to take that percentage of what wrong was found and apply it to the larger group and In this case, it's a different issue because there was a policy as to meal breaks and as to using these agreements. And there was also some deposition testimony that went to, you know, when these were signed by employees and whether they included the requisite revocation language. And so the statistics were really just looking at what portion of the class actually was damaged by the policy that there was other evidence showing the employer had done.
0: Yeah. The panel said, you know, if we're going to assign liability, the courts would like it to be on something more firm than statistical sampling. Although, like you say, in the Tyson case, if it, it's reliable sampling, then it, it could be the basis for liability. The, the panel also mentioned another point of distinction between the Duke's case and, and this case, and that was the type of claims brought. These are wage and hour claims and the ones brought... And Dukes were Title VII gender discrimination claims. What's the the importance of the difference there?
2: For the main part under Title VII, um, by statute, once the plaintiff makes a prima facie showing of discrimination, then there's the burden which shifts to the employer. And the employer then has a statutory right to avoid liability by showing that it Um, took the adverse employment action, as you would, um, based on a reason other than discrimination. So, in other words, the employer in a Title VII case has the right to assert an affirmative defense by statute. And so the concern was that they would be deprived of that right in some of the individual cases if you were just to do mini trials on a subset of the employees and then extrapolate the liability class-wide.
0: And it's not the case for um, these wage-and-hour claims?
2: Well, it's, it's different here because you have um, a policy about on-duty meal periods and then you're looking at how many people might have been affected by that policy. And in the gender discrimination, the question itself of whether there's liability is individual as opposed to a class practice. In Uh, Dukes, for instance, I think the only class-wide argument that they had was that there was a delegation of these decisions to the management level. So there wasn't a class um, policy that would be appropriate to a statistical proof. I also think that the court was distinguishing Title VII claims because of the individualized remedies. Um, They aren't, Mm they don't simply have damages sometimes they have to have reinstatement um, or we re- or hire an employee back you know with or without back pay whereas the meal and rest claims tend to sure. just be damages
0: okay maybe just to pin down exactly what the panel is saying here they they're approving of the use of statistical sampling in this case in this manner but they aren't actually saying it it should be used or requiring it to be used at the trial court i think they're saying that even if it is not used if you even if you don't take a, a sample a certain percentage of these employment contracts and look at them and extrapolate from them. Um you you could look at all of them and look at the language in all of them. That would be more burdensome, but it's it's possible.
2: Yes. So one of the distinctions I think in Lubin in the in the Wackenhut case was that, you know, the employer initially had been the one that resisted the burdensome discovery of producing all the employee contracts. And had agreed to use the statistical sampling as an alternative, um, as a discovery mechanism. So, it's a little difficult then um, for them to come in and say, you know, that they have had their due process rights violated by statistical sampling when they'd waived their objection to limiting, you know, by limiting sure. the meal agreements.
0: Uh, agreeing at that stage that they wouldn't contest the the reliability of the the sampling,
2: right. I mean, I think, again, the, one of the just the key distinctions here was that there were other sources of proof for the liability, meaning the deposition testimony showing a consistent policy. So I think that was really where they were running into sure. the, the wall in terms of being able to use the statistics.
0: Okay. So it would probably be a misinterpretation to say this is a, a broad Endorsement of statistical sampling for for all purposes. It's in this particular I, type of case. Where,
2: okay. I agree with that.
0: At oral argument, there, there's another case that was mentioned by the the defendant and appellee's counsel, um, that was a California Supreme Court case since Duke's, and obviously before this case that had also disapproved of statistical sampling in in a certain context. But why uh, why did that case not control the outcome uh, here? Uh, well,
2: I think you're talking about the Duran versus U.S. Um, bank case, Um, Mm. there were reliability issues with that statistical evidence in that case. The court found the sample wasn't um, sufficiently representative or random, and there was a intolerably large margin of error, I think, with their language. So here in Lubin, there were not analogous concerns about the appellate statistical evidence, and they had stipulated to its use and said that they wouldn't challenge the accuracy or reliability of the proposed sampling method.
0: Okay. And maybe one, one last one, if this case is appealed, which I imagine it will be, um, how might you think the, the California Supreme Court might feel about granting review and how it might feel about the, this result? And sort of um, notwithstanding the fact that it could be looked at and reversed, what, what are some of the most important takeaways that an employment lawyers should have in mind after this case?
2: Sure. I mean, obviously, it's always hard to say, you know, we'll, we'll, figure out when, when review be granted. I certainly believe there's uh, still a, a room for and a need for um, interpretation of how statistical evidence can be used in these types of cases. Just like I think Duke's um, was not an automatic ban to statistical evidence, this is not an automatic green light for its use. Um, one potential issue I think, or ground for reversal, may be going back to Brinker, um, That said, you know, we can have class treatment, and this is the Brinker decision that dealt with, with meal periods and, um, rest and spoke about, uh, proof and class certification. And they said there can be class treatment when you've got a uniform policy consistently applied. And that second part, the consistently applied, I think we have to look at whether statistical sampling, um, would, would be fair and, and can work. I mean, here the appellate court in Lubin, um, you know, did recognize that there were profound differences among the work sites and the nature of work that the various security officers performed. It went ahead and allowed the, you know, to it ordered the decertification anyway, but I think that's a potential area where there are differences in the application that continue to make the use of statistical evidence problematic. Uh, as far as takeaways, um, I mean, I think employers in California have to realize that they they may definitely face the use of statistics in class uh, actions, um, and it's even more important than ever to make sure that they have compliant written wage and hour policies You know that go to every particular point. Um, if you have an imperfect policy, then it could open the door uh, for a class even if only a small number of employees are affected. So, I think that's the best thing that employers can do to try to protect themselves.
0: Okay. Well, I think we'll leave it there. So, the use of statistical sampling is certainly strengthened a bit here, but uh, pending potential Supreme Court review. And, like you say, not, not a complete green light. Uh, Ms. Lisa Von Eschen of Lehman Kawakami, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it.
2: Oh, sure. Thanks so much. Take care.
0: with that, our program for December 9th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to thank this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both my wonderful guests, Justice Nora Manella and Lisa Von Eschen. I'd like to thank you, our listener, for tuning in and some members of my production staff here, including Ellen Ireland, Helen Enriquez, Nicholas Sonnenberg, and of course, our editor, David Houston. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.